Well, good morning, Gateway. It's good to see all of you here again this morning. And um, as we look around, we notice there's some people missing. We know that there's a number of people in our church that are sick and out or traveling and aren't here. And uh, as Ed was praying for them, I just you know want you to be mindful to pray for your uh, church family, just wherever they may be. I want to invite you to get your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 16. If you're visiting with us this morning, um, it is our practice just to let the Word of God speak. And we have to deal things as we come to them. And we are in Acts chapter 16, having gone through Acts chapters 1 through 15 already. And this is the 35th sermon in Acts. And uh, we still have a long way to go. And it's been quite a journey. And so um, I want to invite you to stand with me as we read Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. Beginning at verse 1. Paul came also to Derb and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, including or concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Smothrus, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who who had come come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lord, help us again today to allow your word to have its way in us. Lord, what we Know not, Lord, would you teach us. What we are not, Lord, would you make us. And what we have not, Lord, would you give us. And allow me, as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful to proclaim your truth to your church, as well as, Lord, your gospel to those who do not know you. We ask this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, some of you when you go on vacation, you plan out every little detail. I mean, like what time you're leaving, 
Not a general time, but a specific time of what time you're going to arrive at your destination, where you're going to eat at that destination, where you're going to stay at that destination, and then even what you're going to do. And it's a good thing because you have everything ordered together. You know where you're going and what the objective is, and you're organizing all your fun events, right? There are others, though, that like to go on vacation but hang a little looser than that. Okay, maybe you got the hotel down, but we'll just kind of like feel our way through the rest of it. Well, some of you don't even worry about the hotel. You just want to go on a drive and see where it takes you. And friends, those are things and attitudes and, and I would say experiences that we all have. And what we, what we find when we come to Acts 16 is Paul and Silas going on another journey. They have a general plan. But that plan is going to be derailed. God is going to come along and he's going to change it. But along that journey, some things happen. Now, let me back up a little bit. If you remember, this is on the heels of Paul and Barnabas having this conflict. And as a result of that conflict, Barnabas takes John Mark with him south to Cyprus, which is the original plan. And Paul then heads north with Silas. And they're heading into, the, the, the goal here is to go and visit the churches that Paul and Barnabas had helped to start in the region of Galatia on their first missionary journey. And then basically to, to follow up with that and to shepherd them some more, and maybe even to, to reinforce or establish some elders in those churches. But unlike the first missionary journey, this trip would take them much further west into what we would call today Eastern Europe, Turkey, and Greece. It really begins here at chapter 15 and verse 36 when Paul says to Barnabas, hey, let us return. Uh, by the way, hey is in the King James Version, just so you know that, right? Uh, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord. And then it will end in Acts chapter 18 and verse 22. And on this trip, an incredible trip, this ministry team will go in Num, uh, in a, into a number of places and see the gospel proclaimed in Philippi, in Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus before they ultimately go back to Jerusalem and then back home, the, the epicenter of that gospel ministry, which is now Antioch. And this trip is longer than the first missionary journey. It's about three to four years in length. Now, this is a long trip, friends. And you can have some basic plans but plans don't always go your way. Now, Acts 16 in particular, in this chapter, we're going to encounter four wonderful but very different conversion stories. A young man by the name of Timothy, who's likely in his teens. A respected and connected businesswoman, Lydia. A girl possessed by a spirit, she's unnamed. A prison warden, again, unnamed. But today, our focus is going to be on the first 15 verses. And in our passage, as Paul and Silas set off on the second missionary journey, Luke wants to establish for his readers the ongoing ministry of Christ in the hearts of men. Christ has not stopped his mission. He's still pursuing his witness to the end of the earth. And so this passage serves to remind us that it is Christ who is still at work by the Holy Spirit through the word to bring about his will in the hearts of men and women. 
And my aim this morning is that through our time in this text, that you will embrace a heart for gospel ministry. And if you already have a heart for gospel ministry, it will be strengthened, it will be emboldened, it will be refined but also that the direction or the orientation of your heart will will be to serve the Lord with your life. Whether you're a mother with young children, whether you're a husband grinding it out at work to provide for your family, whether you're a student in school or in college looking to your future vocation, whether you're a senior saint who might feel like you don't matter much anymore, or whether you're a single person trying to make it in this crazy and expensive place we call the Bay Area. Friends, do you have a heart for ministry? Now, I know you're here in church, but I'm not necessarily talking about being here in church. That's certainly part of it. But has God put on your heart a a, a heart for outreach, for reaching people, for talking to people, to spread the gospel, or to be a part of that spread? Now, in our text today, we will encounter three hearts that are affected, changed, and challenged by Christ and His Holy Spirit through the Word. Look up at the screen. I'm going to show you just a map of what's taking place and how our passage really unfolds. There's three sections. The first section is the journey to Lystra. That's the yellow section up on the map. The second part of the journey is the journey to Troas. And the final part of our text is this journey to Philippi. They finally get there and they meet some people. But this is going to really set the tone for us. And each of those parts of the journey is going to be an individual that we're going to focus in on to see God continually at work in the hearts of man. So let's begin with the first section here, Timothy, a willing heart. Verse 1, Paul came also to Derb and to Lystra. And what we find here is that Timothy has a willing heart. He's going to meet a young man by the name of Timothy. It says a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. Now remember, Lystra was somewhat of a backwater town. The record we have of the first missionary journey, if you remember, it's Paul and Barnabas. They come into town, they heal a lame man, and the people there think the gods have come. Zeus and Hermes are here, and they want to have a worship service to them. And eventually, Paul and Barnabas were able to kind of calm them down, but not before there was a group of people, Jews, that came into town and ran them out. But they were able to share the gospel. They were able to preach the truth of the good news of the gospel. And, and God had been working in the heart, in particular, of a, a mother and a grandmother. And ultimately, in the heart of this young man, Timothy. Now, we're not given all the details. Timothy may have received the gospel when Paul was there initially. It seems, however, that Paul or, or, or Silas are not aware of Timothy's conversion at that point in time, that when they come a second time, this is when they're introduced to him. So he may have been been saved under the preaching ministry of of Paul and Barnabas, but it's also likely that you have um, uh, Lois and Eunice here, mother and grandmother, who had also heard the gospel, 
but had been raising their son in the the scriptures, in the fear of the Lord. And when they are converted, they begin to continue to teach their son and show him the gospel, and he ends up becoming a believer. So either of those scenarios are very, very likely. The point here is that when Paul and Silas arrive, they hear about this young man who has this this great uh, reputation among the people, and Paul wants Timothy to accompany him. Now, just imagine you're in your teen years. You've heard a gospel either when that evangelist came or through your mother and your grandmother, and you've believed it to be true. You're now passionate about your walk with, with Jesus Christ. And after months, maybe even a year, that evangelist returns, and he comes up to you, and he says, I want you to come with me. Now, what kind of struggle are you going to have? Well, this is, this is all I know. Back then, they didn't have cars. They didn't have BART. They didn't have trains. They didn't have airplanes. Where you were born typically is where you lived out your life. This is the, where the people are that you know. But Timothy here is willing to be submissive to Paul and his request for him to come with him. Now remember, not only was he willing to go here, but remember also what happened to Paul. The angry Jews came and they ran him out of town and probably heard stories about him being dragged out of the city and left for dead. Am I willing to go and to be a part of that? Timothy's willing. He's willing to leave town. He's willing to leave his godly mother and grandmother. He's willing to submit himself to the leadership and guidance of Paul. Timothy is willing to be submissive. Secondly, Timothy is willing to be sacrificial. It says, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for all they know, or all they knew, uh, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, just imagine we're going to have a short-term missions trip, maybe six months or so, and we're going to go maybe someplace in Mexico and gather all the people together. So, all right, guys, if you're not circumcised, you need to get circumcised. This is no small thing that happens to Timothy. I don't have to explain why. I think you understand why. This was an act of sacrifice on his part that he would experience in his body for the sake of gospel ministry. Now, I know you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't Paul and Barnabas in Antioch have this confrontation with the Judaizers or the party of the Pharisees who were saying you must be circumcised in order to be saved? And Didn't they go to Jerusalem and have this, this Jerusalem council that, that, uh, that said, hey, wait a second, no, no, you do not need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And are they not even now carrying a letter to report about what happened in that council and to give direction to the churches? So why is Paul now circumcising Timothy? Well, there's a reason. And the reason is he's circumcising Timothy not for uh, for him to be saved, but he's circumcising him for gospel fellowship. He is exercising wisdom and the application of Christian liberty so that when they would go into a synagogue where there are Jews who are gathered, they don't want any potential offense to stop the spread of the gospel. So he's willing 
to experience pain in a very sensitive area for the sake of the gospel. Friends, I don't know that you or I would have to experience that kind of stuff. But there are some things that we might have to experience along the way for the sake of gospel fellowship and for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel. There's similar types of questions we have to ask anytime we're doing cross-cultural ministry. If I'm talking to a pastor, or maybe I'm going into their church, if I'm going to go to a different country, I'm asking questions like this. Hey, what, what should I wear? What's typical for your church? I don't want to come in dressed like I am when they're a shirt and tie type of a place. For them, they might say, boy, that's really, really disrespectful for a pastor to not be wearing a shirt and a tie. We may disagree on that reality, but this is their territory. This is where they're from. This is their culture. This is what their norm is. And my job is then to say, I do not want to be a stumbling block. I'm going to wear whatever you want me to wear, even though I have freedom in Christ to do something different. Should I have the ladies with me wear a dress or a skirt on Sunday morning if that's going to help? Right? Absolutely. When we went to Bolivia, when we first went to Bolivia, these are the questions I was asking, and we made sure that the ladies were dressed in a certain way. Why? Because we don't want to be an offense. What kind of translation of the Bible are they using there? You know, if, if it's a, an English-speaking area, is it the King James, is it the NIV, is it the ESV? It's an important question. It may, it may be a, you know, might find, well, it's a King James-only type of place. That's a whole other issue. But you still go into that context. Don't make it an issue. You preach the gospel. Why? Because you care about the people. You don't just get offended and say, well, I have freedom to do. No, 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 no. This is Christian liberty. Christian liberty is the freedom to not do what you have the freedom to do for the sake of the gospel. Would it be best if, if I wear a long sleeve shirt to cover up my tattoos? Now, I don't have any tattoos, but if I did, those tattoos might, in a certain context, be offensive to the people that I'm trying to minister to. So I'll wear something long to cover those tattoos. Now, we realize it's just, it's just a marking on skin, but for them, it might be something more than that. What about my earring or earrings? Would it be best if I just didn't wear them? I'm speaking to the guys here. Some context, like, what are you doing wearing an earring? I, you know, I have the right to wear an earring. This is what we do in America. Well, it doesn't matter what you do in America. We're here to do gospel ministry. Are you willing to set aside that freedom for the sake of gospel fellowship? Are you wearing masks at church or not? Been kind of a touchy one recently, right? Well, they're, they're still wearing, I can't believe they're still wearing masks. These people don't know. They want to wear a mask? Wear masks. You go into a church where that's the norm? You conform. You go into a church that's not? You can still wear your mask if you want to or not. But you're just not going to make this an issue and cause a stumbling block. In some contexts, should a woman wear a head covering? What about physical affection? Hugs and kisses and personal space. I've been in some cultures. You know, I, I, I say when I moved out to California and met my wife and went to the Hispanic church in Oakland. I've never been hugged and kissed by so many women in one day in all my life. <laughs> a different context. You know, go to England, you kind of pretend you're shaking hands at a distance. I mean, it's just a whole different world. 
I remember ministering with uh, Slavic Gospel Association in Russia, and one of the things that, that they did is they put together kind of a, a sheet to kind of make you think through your, the fact that you're going into a different culture. And one of the things they told us, I was an instructor of other pastors or guys that were preparing for ministry, and one of the things they said is, listen, do not show them pictures of your hot rod car. Well, I didn't have a hot rod car, but don't show them pictures of your nice car. Why? Because most of them don't have a car. Don't show them pictures of your house. Why? Because most of them live in communist-era apartments with their families. What, what we consider typical middle class is rich to them. So you don't want it to be something that would hinder your ministry in that context. And I'm just sharing all these different things to say, we have a responsibility to ask those kinds of questions. And so the Apostle Paul here is exercising wisdom. I mean, this is Timothy is saying, I'm willing to go and I'm willing to submit to this for the sake of gospel ministry. He's willing to sacrifice. Third, he was willing to be a servant. And it's not too much to say here is that he jumps right in with the team as they go to the different churches, taking that letter and sharing that letter and being a part of the equipping of the saints and the strengthening of the church in the faith as they increased in numbers daily. And friends, as I am sure you know, Timothy would continue to serve Paul, in particular when he needed some, someone with a delicate nature to speak into churches with complex problems, he sent Timothy. Because Timothy's personality was not confrontational. I mean, Paul was, you know, he was, he was hard. Timothy was much more gentle and worked through delicate situations. Eventually, Timothy would be the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and Paul would write at least two letters to help and encourage Timothy to be a faithful pastor, but also to take up the baton for guarding the gospel and the ongoing training of men for ministry. And Paul would eventually describe Timothy to the Philippian church in the following way. Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 and following. Just listen to what it says. Paul says to the Philippian church, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son without a father, he has served with me in the gospel. You can, you can see this beautiful, wonderful relationship that they have together. And then in those two letters to, to Timothy, as well as in the, the, the letter to the church at Corinth, this is how Paul describes him. My beloved and faithful child in the Lord, my true child in the faith, my beloved child. Friends, do you have a willing heart? When Christ comes knocking on your door, asking you to follow him into ministry, are you willing to come to give your life to him? Are you ready to submit and to sacrifice and to serve for the furtherance of gospel ministry? God took a young man from an obscure place, raised him up under a key leader so that he would have a great impact in the church for gospel ministry. And, you know, there's a couple of things I want to say. First of all, to any young person who might be here today, you can do a lot of things with your life. 
You can be an engineer, you can be a doctor, you can be a software developer, a police officer, a teacher. All of those things are good and necessary, and we need Christians in those disciplines. But God may put on your heart a call to gospel ministry, and it will come with its own kind of difficulty. It will require sacrifice. It will mean living a life of service to God and to his people, but it will be rewarding, and it will be worth it. And I remember when God started to work on my heart. I had been a believer maybe for six months. And I got kind of sensed in my heart a desire, a passion to, 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 to help people with the word of God. And I was listening and hearing other people encouraging, just like I am now, young people to consider ministry. And during that time, I just really believed that God had oriented my heart in that direction. Other people were planning on going to college and getting degrees in law and business and different things like that, which is all good. But it wasn't for me. I was 17 at that time, and I was focused on chemistry and history and English literature, playing soccer and basketball and baseball for my school and just having fun with my friends. But in the back of my mind and in my heart, I knew kind of God was directing me in this orientation in this way. Over the course of the next couple of years, God continued to tap on my shoulder, giving me opportunities to speak and to sit under men that I respected. He was making it clear that he wanted me to go into ministry. Look, God takes young people. And he calls them into ministry. Friends, I wonder, has God been at work in you, stirring up in you a hunger, a desire to serve him in a more specific pastoral, missional way? Young people and parents hear this. The world's message is you will be satisfied when you make more money. The Lord's message is you will be be truly satisfied when you humble yourself and you serve me. Whatever God may create create you to be, a dentist, a teacher, a chiropractor, an architect, a chef, a landscaper, and so on, true satisfaction will only come when you're living your life to humbly serve Christ. Now it's to the young people. This is to the parents. Are you willing to let your children go? To not make the money that maybe you want them to make. Maybe to not go to that prestigious college you want them to go to. Or to not have that high paying job. But to go and serve the Lord. To be trained to be a pastor or to be a missionary or to be a a biblical counselor. Are you willing to go before the Lord and pray, Lord, if it's your will to take my child for gospel ministry, I release them to you. And I will do all I can to help them on that journey. I am willing to let them go for the sake of the gospel. Are you willing to do that? Family can often be the biggest help and encouragement for gospel ministry. Or they can be the biggest hindrance and discouragement. Are you willing to follow the footsteps of Timothy's grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice? who were willing to let him go and serve the Lord. Imagine if they had intervened saying something like, he's too young, he's not ready, he's too shy, he's too timid. There's no way you're circumcising my son. Friends, do you have a willing heart? That's Timothy. Secondly, we move now from Timothy's willing heart to Paul's discerning heart. 
Paul and Silas and Timothy leave Lystra and head through Phrygia and Galatia to forge a new, forge into new Gentile territory. And Paul is eager to proclaim the gospel in these new territories. I love, he's like a bulldog. I want to get that gospel. I want to go. I want to go here. I want to go here. And the Lord has him on a leash, so to speak, right? And what we find as we begin this section is that Paul encounters divinely frustrated plans. God calls us to make our plans, doesn't he? He calls us actually to work hard to make our plans, to be diligent in making our plans, yet he also calls us to be flexible. And if you've ever been on a mission, short-term missions trip with me, one of the first things I will say to you is, I'm so glad that you're here on this journey. There's one word I want you to know, actually two words, be flexible. Be flexible. Why? Because you're going to have to be. When you're serving the Lord, flexibility is always the case, right? I mean, look at what happened this morning. You just got to roll with it. Right? We don't measure the success of our Sunday mornings by the fact that we started on time, although we want to do that. But we, want, we measure it based on, was, was God at work? Was he teaching us? Was he using the, 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 the ministry of worship to help encourage and direct our thoughts? Plans are good, but they're also there to be derailed by God. <laughs> so Paul wanted to take the gospel to the region of Asia. Guess what? He was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Paul wanted to go into the region of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Paul is eager to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He has a plan, but God purposely frustrated those plans. Now, what's going on here? Our, our tendency is to spiritualize these statements and to turn them into mystical experiences, a dream, a vision, a prophetic word. Silas was a prophet, remember? Or maybe some inner prompting. And there may have been some of that going on, okay? We may have an image of the Holy Spirit standing in the road like a soldier with a, a shield and a sword saying, none shall pass. But the reality is more likely that God providentially used some circumstance to stop them from entering those regions. I'm not denying the fact that God can use other things, but sometimes God just uses providence. A sickness, the weather, the difficult terrain, political struggles. But we don't know because Luke doesn't tell us here. Now, you know, it's interesting as I was reading this and think about missions and ministry, I'm just reflecting over the past couple of years. I wanted to go to Bolivia in 2020 and in 2021 to continue the Simeon Trust training of the local pastors that were there. The last time we had been there in Santa Cruz and in, in, in uh, La Paz, we had over uh, 100 in each location. I mean, the, 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 the work that we were doing was growing and growing and growing. We're just thankful for it. And so we just, to be able to go back and to, to invest more was part of our heart. And, and Matthias is like, we want you to come. And we're all kind of kicking this can of what's going to happen, right? Because we thought that COVID was going to be over in three weeks. Didn't we all? Flatten the curve. We'll be done. We'll make it, right? But the Lord hindered me from going due to COVID. This past January, I and Alexi wanted to go to Ukraine. We jumped through all the hoops and made sure we had all the vaccination status all in order. In fact, the day before we were supposed to leave, Alexei got his final paperwork from the doctors. He said, we're good to go. We're excited. We're ready. We're rejoicing together. But later that day, 
our government said, if you are a U.S. citizen, get out of Ukraine. So in this situation, the Lord hindered us from going to Ukraine due to war. <laughs> so listen, God, God hinders what we want to do, often by practical things. Now you might be saying, I wanted to go to Stanford for college, but the Lord didn't allow it because I wasn't accepted. And we can get angry at that, or we can say, this is, this is the Lord's will. Or I wanted to get that promotion at work, but it's given to your coworker. Okay, this is not God's plan then. Or I wanted to go see my grandchild in Oceanside, but when I arrived, I got sick and could only see him through a window. And then had to drive 14 hours to get home because the grapevine was covered in snow. God hindered. James Boyce helpfully teaches us. We need to understand that closed doors, though they are a type of negative guidance, are nevertheless true guidance. If we can learn anything from the Apostle Paul here, we learn that negative guidance merely keeps us from where we are not called in order that in God's time we might come to where God is calling us and will provide blessings. Friends, when you have a discerning heart, you have enough discernment to understand that the circumstances you are going through indicate the Lord's purposes in your life. In the same way, Paul wants to take the gospel everywhere, but it is God who is orchestrating the travel plans of the mission. So we begin here with divinely frustrated plans. Now we move into divinely directed plans. These are the open doors. And what we encounter here is Paul having a vision. Look at verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now we don't know who this man is. Luke doesn't tell us. But like Philip with the Ethiopian, and like Peter with Cornelius, the Spirit of God leads the outreach here. The Spirit of God, in his own various ways, both closes and opens doors. But the point here is that it is still Christ, through the Spirit, that is directing the spread of the gospel to the end of the earth. He guides his people away from places he doesn't want them to go. Those are closed doors, and he guides his people to places where they need to go. Those are the open doors. So what we have here with what we call the Macedonian call is humanity's cry for help. Humanity's cry for mission. Jesus says, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. The people say, come over to our land and help us. See, the hearts of people are hurting, aching, broken, and lost, and they need help. They need salvation through Christ's gospel. They may not know it, not until the gospel is proclaimed, but God is at work already preparing the hearts of people for the gospel. So not only does Paul have a discerning heart, his heart is oriented to be a witness to the Gentiles so that through the gospel they can find help in Christ. His heart is for the people whom Christ will save. That's a perspective, friends. You know, we go out into the world or we're interacting with people and we might be afraid of them. They're, they're the world. 
Paul's saying, they're potential Christians. And I'm not going to know that unless I talk to them and share the gospel with them. He realizes God is orchestrating. He's, he's got this plan in motion. He's the vehicle through which the gospel is being, is being uh, witnessed. Again, I remember um, when, uh, how our, our ministries in, in both Ukraine and Bolivia began. Matthias called me up one day. This is after we'd started uh, Gateway, about a year into it. He says, would you please come and help train the pastors under my care in Bolivia? What am I supposed to say? No, not going to do it. Why would, why would I want to, Why would our church want to be involved in that? No, of course we're like, all right, there's a real need, and they can't get it. No, they, they, they really need help here, brother. Or he went to Bolivia, and here we are years later, just having a wonderful impact there. I remember how our relationship started with Roman Krabatsky in, in Ukraine, visiting our church, hearing about what was happening in Bolivia, and he says, would you please come to Ukraine and help us and the pastors there so that we can, we can do what you're, you're saying needs to be done? Again, like a, a bulldog on steak, um, it was like, yeah, of course we can come. We'll figure this out. Why? They're crying out for help. And so we go. Our mission endeavor is to help the people of those countries receive the good news of the gospel, in particular by helping to train pastors to handle the word of God carefully. And so when that is done, as they preach the word of God, those people under their ministry will also be strengthened by the word of God. It's a trickle-down approach to missions. So friends, this is a discerning heart. Yes, there's going to be frustration with our plans, but God is ultimately directing those plans. And discernment is the ability to see what God is doing and not to be so angry and frustrated with what he's not, or with what he's hindering. So I'm reminded again of a famous verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. But here's the part, in all your ways, what? Acknowledge him when the doors are closed and when the doors are open. You say, this is God's doing. He's at work. I'm going to follow his lead. Again, to, to acknowledge him is to recognize it, his hand at work in your life. It's to attribute to him any blessing or trial that you may be going through. Now, friends, we, we then turn in our, in our guidance, in our, in our approach to understanding guidance, first of all, to the word of, God, word of God for clear guidance as to what we should and shouldn't do. Then with the word of God, we apply wisdom. In that context, wisdom is the skillful application of the Word of God in our lives. And then, what we also do is we pray. Word of God, wisdom, prayer, and if we're still struggling, we seek godly counsel. I know it's a very simplistic way of approaching it, but those things are true, are they not? See, we're not looking to bypass God's breathed-out Word, but to see God's guidance through it. And my fear, friends, is that we may, we may function in our Christian lives more on what we perceive to be a prompting of the Holy Spirit than the actual words and direction of the Spirit revealed in his word. So our discernment of God's will cannot be driven by a perceived experience, but through the word of God, which is at work in our hearts. So I draw your attention to Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. You want to know the will of God? Spend time in the Word of God. That's not the only thing, but that's one of the major things we want to be doing here. We cannot come to this passage, then, as a proof text that we should trust the mystical promptings that we feel or perceiving are happening in our hearts. The vision that Paul receives is for a unique purpose given to a unique group of people in unique circumstances. And you and I are not the Apostle Paul. Now, not only is this this vision that Paul has, but I want you to notice in verse 10 what we also see. If we read the text carefully here, we'll notice that it wasn't Paul alone who made this decision to go into Macedonia. He had the vision, sure enough, but he and his companions collaborated to discern the will of God. Look at verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia. What? Concluding. We concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, friends, this is so important. Why? Because we often think of Paul as like, all right, guys, this is where we're going. Follow me. And we're going to go. But that's not how he's functioning in leadership. Here is it. He has this vision he comes to his companions and say, this is what I, this is what I experienced. I, this is what, what I believe God was saying. And they collaborated together and all decided, this is the Holy Spirit. This is from God. We're going to go to Macedonia together. might change a little bit of your perspective of who Paul is. And friends, just a, just a minor note here as we, as we kind of continue on in this text. I want you to notice in verses 1 through 9 that Luke uses the words, they did X, Y, Z. But beginning here at verse 10, and through the rest of this book, he uses the we and us. Somewhere along the way, maybe in Troas, Luke joins Paul and Silas and Timothy. And there's now four of them who are part of this missions team going forward into Europe. So here we have it. We have Timothy, a willing heart, Paul, a discerning heart, and finally Lydia, an attentive, open heart. Now, we're introduced here to the city of Philippi. What does our text tell us about the city of Philippi? Just some basic things here. It's a leading city in Macedonia. It's a Roman colony, so it was an important and thriving city. But notice, it was a Roman colony, right? So it, was, it, was, it, it wasn't just the fact that it was there in the Mediterranean, but it was a Roman kind of colony. This is, this is the culture that was there. And the church in the city would be, become ultimately faithful partners in ministry with Paul and give him and others so much joy. Here we have the beginnings of that church. Then I also want you to think about the synagogue. Apparently, as we come in here, the typical pattern of Paul was to go into a city, a central city, the large city, and then to find the synagogue to, to expose the people and the Jews in that synagogue to Jesus, who is right there in the Old Testament scriptures. 
and to begin then to see the gospel go forward. But when he comes to Philippi, he doesn't find a synagogue. There's no synagogue. And so apparently what happens is they ask some questions. All right, we know there's some Jews in here. Where do the Jews gather on the Sabbath? Because Jews will gather on the Sabbath. And by the way, you had to have at least 12 men, Jewish men, in order to actually establish a synagogue. So somehow they find out that the people are meeting down by the river. And so they go down by the river. We're not given the details here, but what they do find when they arrive is not men, but a gathering of women. God-fearing women. Women who had embraced Judaism. Maybe they were Jews, or maybe they were proselyte Jews, but they had embraced this, this, uh, this monotheistic approach to life under Judaism. And as Paul's custom was, he sat down to speak to the women about Christ. Now, just don't, don't think he's like, oh, okay, I'm going to sit down and chill out. No, this is, this is the, the formal position and posture of a rabbi or a leader speaking in the context of, of worship, sharing the truth of the scriptures there. And so Luke ultimately draws our attention to one woman. Her name is Lydia. And I just want you to notice a couple of things about Lydia. First of all, just notice her standing here. She's from Thyatira, a key city in Asia. Now, just bells should be ringing a little bit there. Why? Because where is it that Paul ultimately wanted to go? But he was hindered by the Spirit. Asia. So God brings Paul all the way to Philippi to see a woman from Asia, in particular from Thyatira, um, be converted. Notice also she was a wealthy businesswoman, a seller of purple. And purple was an expensive dye color, which only the wealthy could afford. It was <clears throat> primarily from Thyatira. They had some places in this region too where they could get they could create the dye. But she was also, we're told here, an owner of a house. And to own a house, especially one where many people could stay and be fed, is evidence of wealth. We're told that she's a worshiper of God a proselyte Jew, a convert from polytheism to monotheism of Judaism. Now, that's, that's her standing. There's probably more to say about this, but she was a wealthy businesswoman from Thyatira who was also a worshiper of God. But I want you to now notice that the emphasis that is put on her salvation. Luke records for us three evidences of Lydia's salvation. First of all, divine activity. The Lord opened her heart. It was the Lord who was at work. It is the Lord who was always the agent for conversion. The Lord is the one that opened her heart. Unlike the the Apostle Paul's dramatic conversion on the the road to Damascus, here we have Lydia's conversion, but it was a quiet act of God. The Lord opened her heart. Opened her heart to what? Notice what it says. To pay attention to what was said by Paul. In other words, Lydia paid attention to the preaching of God's word. And it's through the exposition of the word that Lydia is saved. And friends, that should encourage us. It encourages me. (laughs) It just reinforces what I'm doing. And look, if you are bringing someone with you who is not a believer to sit under the word of God on Sunday morning, God is at work through the regular exposition of his word. When the word of God is faithfully preached, it is powerfully at work in the hearts of men. 
in your heart, in your spouse's heart, and in your children's heart. Divine activity. Secondly, public testimony. Here she was baptized. Where was she baptized? Probably right in that river next to where they're worshiping, which would be very public indeed. You know, we do our baptisms in the baptistry here. We've done it in the pools and stuff like that. But we don't typically do them kind of in a public setting, probably because we don't want problems and all that kind of stuff. But here, it's happening. Everyone can see here. You know, coming by, all these pagans coming by. What's going on here? Well, this woman's a Jew, and she's just become a Christian. Oh, so they're going through this. I mean, this is a public testimony, friends. And Lydia's conversion had such an impact on her household uh, that they also choose to follow Christ follow her example in baptism. And what we see is that the man of Macedonia turns out to be a woman. Her name is Lydia. And this, her home would ultimately end up being a platform for ministry when we get to that, because this is a third thing. We see Christian hospitality. This is the fruit of her faithfulness. See, having received forgiveness through Believing in Christ and having followed obediently through the waters of baptism, Lydia now demonstrates the faithfulness of her conversion by exercising her spiritual gift of hospitality. God had opened her heart. Now her heart is open to those Christians. And she proves to be a woman that you just can't say no to. Notice what it says there. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She prevailed upon us. I'm reading this, and three women came into my mind when I thought about this text. First of all, my wife, who will spend hours cooking and cleaning, preparing so that those who have the opportunity of, 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 we have the opportunity of having in our home uh, can have a wonderful meal, feel welcome at home, feel comfortable. I thought of my mother and her example, in particular when we were in Germany, the Lord just opened a door of ministry to about 30-plus uh, um, army GIs. Every Sunday afternoon, she would put on a big spread and welcome them in. They were like surrogate parents. My mom just was always there exercising hospitality. I saw that as a young boy. But there's one particular woman that comes to mind that some of you know, and you're probably thinking about her too. Her, too. her name is Mary Mojica. If you've been to Bolivia with me, you know what I'm talking about. She will not stop until you are comfortable, fed, and healthy. The problem is she prevailed on me too many times, and I caved into, into her constant loving pressure for just one more piece of chicken or apple pie or empanada or salteña. Um, she's a model of hospitality. Someone has humorously said, when it comes to hospitality, some people make you feel at home. Others make you wish you were. And friends, we might not understand the impact of Lydia's example here because we're so used to the reality of having hotels and motels and holiday inns. We don't understand that in this day, to go to an inn was not a healthy place for any Christian to be. It was often dirty, full of the kind of people that Christians don't want to be around. It was often just a, a front for, for a brothel. Now, we must be careful that we don't confuse the blessing of biblical hospitality with the culture's desire for entertainment. Karen Maines, in her book, Open Heart, Open Home, makes the following distinguishing statements between entertainment and hospitality. I think they're helpful for us. Entertainment suggests, I want to impress you with my beautiful home, my clever decorating, 
by gourmet cooking. Hospitality, however, seeks to minister. It says, this home is not mine. It's truly a gift from my master. I am his servant. I use it as he desires. Hospitality does not try to impress, but to serve. Entertaining always puts things before people. As soon as I get the house finished, the living room decorated, the place settings complete, my housework done, then I will start having people in. The so-and-sos are coming. I must buy that new such-and-such before they come. Hospitality, however, puts people before things. We have no furniture, but we'll eat on the floor. Entertaining subtly declares, this is mine, these rooms, these adornments. This is an expression of my personality. It's an extension of who and what I am. Look, please, admire. Hospitality whispers, what is mine is yours. The example of Lydia here, friends, may specifically illuminate the beauty of hospitality. But it's simply an example of a host of other ways Christian Christians evidence their faith by serving their brothers and sisters in Christ. How does your genuine conversion bear fruit, give evidence to the genuineness of your faith? So Lydia, we see here, has an open heart, a willing heart, a discerning heart, and an open heart. Let me just conclude with these two truths, two emphases, I think I want to say, just from our passage. Number one, the power of youth. You've already probably aware of this, but youth are typically the driving force of any church and any ministry movement. More recently, the movement has been the young, restless, and reformed. Emphasis on young. A burning passion among the young. Under God's direction, they've been, they're a powerful force for the spread of the gospel and for the health of the church. They bring energy, they bring passion, they bring freedom, and they have a future to forge. Our, our youth are the future of our church and the future of the church. And so we must invest in them, challenge them, train them, and help them to serve the Lord. And if you're a young person here today, I just want to plead with you. Uh, There's pressure from the world to go in the direction they want you to go and to have the ideology that they want you to have. But Christ is coming to you and saying, serve me, live for me, be a part of what I'm doing. And God can powerfully work through you. And we want to be praying for our young people that God would raise up pastors and missionaries. But not just that, people that would go into the business world and be passionate to share the gospel, to live out their lives for his glory. Secondly, the impact of the wealthy. Luke seems to focus on the wealthy in his book. Barnabas, Mary, the mother of John Mark, Cornelius, and now Lydia. All people who with their wealth, are generous, hospitable, caring for the body of Christ. Those whom God has given the gift of wealth are responsible to use it for the glory of God to help the spread of the gospel around the world. Your money isn't just for you. Your money has been entrusted to you as a believer to say, God, how do you want me to use my resources to impact your church locally as well as globally? 
And friends, we are far wealthier in our context than so many people throughout history, aren't we? Let's not miss the opportunity to encourage and bless the body of Christ and the ongoing ministry of the gospel. God continues to be at work in the hearts of men as the journey goes on. And the journey hasn't stopped, has it? Still goes on. He's still at work in a variety of different ways. We just saw three. A willing heart, a discerning heart, and an open heart that was evidenced by hospitality. Lord, help us today. As we encounter, Lord, these people in the word of God, that we would continue to ask ourselves, Lord, what is it you want us to learn How do you want to shape us, Lord? How do you want us to conform to your will? Lord, today we've seen the wonder and the beauty of you bringing salvation to two of these characters, Timothy and Lydia. And Lord, two completely different ways, two completely uh, different people in different contexts with different uh, uh, socioeconomic statuses. And yet, Lord, you, by your gospel, bring them into the fold of your church. And you use them in different ways, Lord, for your glory. And Lord, may we, may, we, may we realize, Lord, that you are at work in our hearts if we're your children. And you want to use us in unique ways that you've wired us for. And so, Lord, help us to be humble before you, to be teachable, and to be guided, Lord, by your Holy Spirit through your word for your glory. We ask this now in your name. Amen.